Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3 cast. I am Brian, and with me, as always, are Zach and Vince. We are going to get to the DC Comics released on July 3rd, 2019, in just a few minutes, but there are some bits of news that we wanted to talk about first. Um, I suppose the biggest bit of news is just a week after DC decided there were going to be no more Vertigo imprint, they just they announced a kind of new imprint. Um, so this is under the Black Label heading, but it's uh, called Hill House, and it's curated by Joe Hill, son of Stephen King, author of Nosferatu, Lock and Key. Uh, what's the other big book he did? Um, he did that movie, the book that got turned into a movie, Horn. Horns. Horns? Yeah, it had Daniel Radcliffe in it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, there's something else I'm forgetting that he did, but that's I think okay. that's right. Did I make that up? No, I'm 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 accurate. He did I'm a book. Not... He did a book called Heart Shaped Box. Um, that was quite good. I didn't read that. Um, no, there's something else. I'll I'll think of it in a second. Um, but anyway, so it's a. Uh, it, it, it's an imprint that has a horror bent to it. They announced, I believe it's five initial books, um, as well as a um, a backup that will run through all five books written by Hill. The, the list of creators is not as, um, excuse me, not as, uh, I feel like when DC does these things, they try and have a very splashy group of creators there. And aside from Hill, there isn't like, there's not a name where you're like, oh shit, they got so and so to do comics. These are all interesting creators, but like Mike Carey and Peter Gross have done lots of comics before, you know. Um, sure, I think that's, I think getting them back together is a, a, not splashy, but that's no, something. I, I think it's awesome. Don't get me wrong, but what, 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 I'm actually happy about this. I feel like the focus is going to be on the books, not the creators this time. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. Um, you know. Yeah. Go ahead, Zach. Talk about this a little bit. Uh, I, well, no, I was going to say, like, that's kind of how you get, like, maybe the next big creator to, you know. Th- this reminds me of, you know, that era when you had Scott Snyder and Jeff Lemire and all those guys come on the scene doing a, a, ostensibly kind of like horror books. And a, a Sweet Tooth less so, but kind of, I don't know. But it, it just reminds me of that a little bit. Yeah. Vince, what do you think of this announcement? I, I've never really been a big horror guy um, to begin with. It's just not my it's not my thing. But I think I think some of these books sound interesting. I think Joe Hill. Actually, I think Joe Hill is kind of an exception for me. I think like he's somebody that that plays in that horror slash paranormal arena that that I do dig. And so having his name on the banner of this thing kind of helps it for me. Um, I think if it were just some random DC horror imprint without his involvement, I don't think I would be as excited. So Even though your boo Kelly Jones is on one of the books? <laughs> even Even though. Okay. Um, I will say, speaking of of banners, so you know how DC has like the title boxes in the corner of their comics. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 Hill House ones are hilarious because it says 
DC Black Label Joe Hill presents Hill House Comics. <laughs> there's like <laughs> there's like five categories on there, uh, and that and some people are sort of you know calling out DC saying, well, okay, if you're getting rid of Vertigo, why couldn't you just do Vertigo as a subset of Black Label? If that's if, if that's really what you're what you want to do, like how is how is having DC Black Label Vertigo any different than having DC Black Label Hill House? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> My only answer is that I think Vertigo as a brand doesn't mean what it what they want it to mean. And so I wouldn't be surprised that they're retiring Vertigo for now to bring it back into what they want it to be. The counter argument to that is they just relaunched Vertigo and could have made it what they wanted it to be and didn't. Right, and their 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 con remember when they did like the Comic-Con Vertigo relaunch announcement? Yes. There was there was a ton of material that was shown along with that that harkened back to their classic titles. And it made you think and it made people speculate that oh we're going to get some like Jeff classic... Lemire's going to do the invisible uh was it the invisibles that he, he did that? I believe so. Peaceful? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that never came to be and so whether whether we all misinterpreted it or DC got different ideas um, you're right. It just didn't work out. But I think like if they're going to return to that idea someday down the road, then that doesn't make any sense to me because they had it right there and kind of bungled it. So, so unless at this point they just think that the, that the vertigo name is just not like, maybe not like a detriment or like garbage, but it doesn't, it just doesn't, doesn't mean, yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean anything anymore, really. And, and so that I could kind of see, but I, I even that I think is like a weak argument. Zach, how do you feel about this line? I'm um, kind of like Vince. I'm not the biggest horror guy, and I've not. I I love Stephen King, but I've not read much Joe Hill. Um, I've read like a handful of issues of Lock and Key, um, and honestly, that actually might be it. Um, but I, I'm. This is kind of lame. I guess I'm most excited for the, uh, the um, Peter Gross, my carry book. Um, yeah. Just because. Why is that lame? Because they're like the most well known. But they're also. I mean, this isn't just like liking a, a pair of creators because they're well known. They're also excellent at what they do. I, I guess that's true. Yeah, it's it is exciting. Like I have read some of their Lucifer and liked it, and I've always wanted to check out Unwritten, but I never have. Just oh, it's so good because of like the time it came out, I did not have like a lot of exp- expendable income, and that one just kind of like fell by the wayside. Um, you would eat that shit up, I think, Zach. Yeah, see, I, yeah, that's another book I've been wanting to check out for years and years, and that's why I wish that DC Universe had more Vertigo stuff on it. Uh huh. Same, yeah. But so I'm kind of excited to like get in on the ground floor with something that they're doing. Um, I, I guess my we're not gonna go through every book because I don't think that makes for good radio. But um, I guess just overall, do you guys think that this is a a winning proposition? Do you think that this is something that's going to be successful for DC, or do you think six months down the road we're gonna be like talking about it that we talk about the new age of heroes or the Sandman universe books or anything else that like was exciting at the time, but then quickly lost its luster. 
I think it's going to be the the latter. It's not Unfortunately. Be... I think there might be like one breakout book, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe two. I don't know. I mean, that's what makes it hard, though, is that because, like, to me, when you're doing, when you're when you're launching all these books at the same time, it's much harder for all of them to succeed. Mm-hmm. But I understand why you want to do this. You you want to launch it as more than just one title, right? You want to launch a line. But I think that for people who are willing to try this stuff, they're more willing to try a book every two months than they are to try a new book every week for a month and a half or whatever it is. Yeah. Right. And I think it also makes, uh, like, let's take the Sandman books, for example. If there were, like, two that we liked and two that we were more ambivalent about, it only makes those two that we don't like as much harder to read because we're reading them right next to, or they started right next to these other ones that were more standout, you know, and that's not, everybody has different opinions, but I think like there's probably very few people who like all four of the Sandman books unequivocally, you know, equal. Yeah. There's probably going to be very few people who like all of these Hill books equally. And so throwing them all out there at once, it's, you know, some of them are going to get left in the lurch a little bit, I think. Do we know, are these all, have these been announced as miniseries or ongoings? They've been announced as nothing. See, I think, I think that's just a new thing also that we're, we're going to see in comics. I wouldn't be surprised if every one of these is secretly actually a miniseries that's only designed to be six or 12 issues long and... You know, if one becomes a, a massive hit, then maybe there's room to expand. But I would not be surprised if they're all just designed to be like six and out. Yeah. And, it, and then we and then we never see Hill House again after that. The bummer of that, which I don't disagree with, I think you're absolutely right on the money there, is I think horror works better as a as a miniseries. I think that a horror story has such tension that needs to be relieved that if you try and stretch it out for too long, it becomes just an, uh, sort of a slog to read through. So I think that it's, it's good if they were limited series, but it's bad for the sales slash the industry if they're limited series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, unless they kept it going and kept new content coming in and it really was like a full line that just kept adding in new content that would maybe that would be fun then it would almost kind of feel like an anthology that is made up of multiple mini series um all of these like look pretty cool i don't really care much for the kelly jones one um both the cover and kelly jones art um is not like super in my wheelhouse you know i'm interested in the two joe hill ones the um, you know, the dollhouse that we mentioned, the Mike Carey one, but then also like, I love the cover on that, uh, the Lolo woods. That looks super fun in a, as fun as a horror book can be, you know, but it looks really cool. Um, who knows? I'm a horrible predictor of these things. <laughs> <laughs> well, sort of in addition to 
the Hill House books being announced, DC also announced their first new Black Label comic that isn't based on a former, like, not a former, a a pre-existing DC comic, and that is uh, The Last God. It's a new horror fantasy comic from Philip Kennedy Johnson and Ricardo Federici. Mm -hmm. Reported on by the great Multiversity Comics. (laughs) (laughs) Zach is giving me shit for me giving him shit about tweeting to a competitor. Or uh, rather, retweeting a competitor. Um, But yes, this is an exciting lineup of creators. Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a. I I like Philip Kennedy Johnson. Um, (laughs) Is it not the weird. Like, again, it's not part of. Well, I guess, is it Black Label? It is Is Black Label, yes. Okay. God, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's such a weird. But hey, we're gonna do this like Conan knockoff. Um, it's not going to involve any uh, like known characters or anything. And uh, and Vertigo's not around anymore. <laughs> but this is clearly a Vertigo book. You know this was pitched as a Vertigo book. You know contracts were signed with this being a Vertigo book. And then yeah. all of a sudden the deal was like, um, no, no Vertigo. And now it. And and I'm sure the book's gonna be. I, I can't wait to check it out. But it just feels so weird that it's not a Vertigo book. Yes, isn't that it, weird how that happens? Like, it's also weird that it's a 12 issue maxi series. Yeah, I feel like that's a very long commitment to give this type of book in 2019. Yeah. Barbarians are hot these days. They are. They are. Um. Did these guys do that Aquaman issue together? Or am I thinking they both were involved yeah. with Aquaman? So Federici did um, fill-ins for Stepien. 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 Coming in September. What? Our Sufjan episode coming in September. Oh, I thought maybe in an Blink New Music or something. And I no. got uh, excited. Uh, <laughs> Kennedy did a Aquaman uh, story in one of the anthology books. I don't remember which one, but I remember we all loved it. Hang on, he did the Aquaman annual. Thank was you. It very the, much. Oh, you're. And it, but and I also was, think did he? I thought he Max, did a one shot too. It was maybe with Max Fiamara. Ah, uh, you're right. Okay, I stand corrected. And wasn't that the one with his son? Yeah, he had the future son, and then he realized it wasn't real. Yeah, and he watched him the... like disintegrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I, I think it's a cool book. I'm again weirded out by the whole black label thing, but that's okay. And uh, yeah, I am happy. I will say this. Jim Lee had tweeted last week that, like, anyone who thinks that the shuddering of Vertigo means less books, you're wrong. We're not, we're not publishing any less. This isn't about calling the line. It's about making a more consistent presentation to, like, to consumers about what our line is supposed to be. And I thought that's a, that's a, that's a good line. You know, I was, I was doing the jerk off hand motion as I read him say that. But if they're going to be announcing new books like this, then maybe, maybe there is a little bit of truth to that. Anyway, we'll see. Um, speaking of Vertigo stuff, though, um, 
there will officially be a Sandman series on Netflix. Uh, it is going to be produced by your friend and mine, David S. Goyer. Um, it is going to be... There is involvement from Neil Gaiman. He is co-writing the pilot, I believe, if not more than just the pilot. Um, and it is going to be showrun by um, Alan Heinberg. Oh. That, that's okay, right? Alan Heinberg is okay, I think, maybe. What would I know his work from? So I know he's done some TV stuff, but I think he's most known for the Young Avengers run from the mid-2000s. Yeah, Heinberg and Jim Chung. Oh, yeah. Young Avengers. Yeah. I was thinking of, like, TV stuff. The name didn't ring a bell in that context. He's done... um, He... Grey's Anatomy... Oh, uh, the OC. Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Like then, no, this is just as this is just as like partial producer. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, let's see. He uh, did the screenplay for Wonder Woman. Oh, okay. Yeah. He right. wrote he wrote lots of episodes of Party of Five. What was the show's theme song? I can't think of it now. I was going to sing your bar, but it's gone. Um, so I think that I speak for all of us when I say, "Get David, Go- David Goyer, get your goddamn hands off my comics. Um, I also, I, lo- I like to think that Sandman could be a really creatively done television show that would break boundaries and play with the medium. But we're just going to get a shitty Sandman show, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. What would it take for it to not be a shitty show? No, it's going to be. Completely different creative involvement. If it wasn't about Vertigo Comics Sandman then it could be good. Honestly, I think the best case scenario for like a sand, a Sandman TV show would be something like the dreaming, but as a TV show. Sure. Something that's like tangential to the, to the story that's already been told. Yeah. Is that, that what you mean? That, that almost sounds like, um, uh, Damon Lindelof's Watchmen. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. saying. Uh, I just don't think we, I'm, Oh man. I just I just do not get excited at all for adaptations anymore. Uh, this coming not... from the guy who just today, just within the last 24 hours, said that he was going to watch the the Henry Cavill Witcher. I also agreed that it looked bad, though. I'm going to watch it as a joke. I don't think it looks good. I'm going to watch like two episodes of it, <laughs> laugh at it a little bit, and then and then not ever watch another episode. Okay. Even the, like, even the Swamp Thing show, which is good, I, I watched an episode and a half, and I just don't feel like watching it. I'd rather, I'm sitting here reading Hellblazer comics and having the time of my life. <laughs> I don't need TV. 
I, I don't disagree with you. I, I don't really watch a lot of TV myself, I, especially since I stopped reviewing those CW shows. Boy, howdy, let me tell you, this is what freedom feels like. Um, <laughs> Man, those CW shows, I'll, like, every once in a while, I'll feel like I should give those another shot. I watched, like, three quarters of an episode of Supergirl the other day, and I just said, nope. <laughs> Look, I, I will still say I think a lot of them are fun. I think that they're whatever. To have to think critically about them was one of the worst decisions I've ever made in my life. Um, <laughs> it was just, it was a slog. It was a slog. It's it's not quite as bad as having to write about Adventures of Superman for the second straight year, because that that show is oh, man. Why do you do this to yourself for the content? For the content, I did it all for the content. What the content? Um, yeah. I where are you gonna where are you gonna stick that content, Brian? <laughs> Up your yeah. Come on. <laughs> um. <laughs> You made me say it. Yeah, yeah. Blame Vince. Um, but yeah, this again. I think that Sandman is like in a perfect world, a TV show makes more sense for Sandman than a film does, just because of the nature of the types of stories you'd want to tell. But if David Goyer is involved, what was the last thing that guy did that was that was not total garbage? His co-writing he- with JSA and Hawkman. He worked on the the Nolan Bat trilogy. How much do you think he did on those movies? I have no idea. I don't know. See, it's funny because at that time in my life, that you know, like late aughts, early twenty teens, like that was the only thing I really knew Goyer. From. The only things I knew Goyer's name from was the the Nolan Batman trilogy and JSA, and so I thought he was. I thought he was good, and then I learned. So, I uh, see, and I always associated Goyer with the most joyless, realistic aspects of the Nolan films. Even even though I don't really think that that was all his fault, um, I just always saw him as the guy who thought Cape comics were something to be mined for exciting modern storytelling, but that a lot of the sillier aspects of them had to be scrubbed out. And that's just always the impression I've gotten from him when he's in interviews talking about how like comic fans are nerds or whatever, who care, who like care about the most minuscule things, which is true. But like, to me, it always signaled that that's him scrubbing this stuff out of these movies to make them more to, to, to ratchet up the realism, which I think is also a slippery slope. So that's my problem with him. I don't I don't think he could possibly look at Sand. I just don't get the impression that he could look at Sandman and go like, ah, that's what I like about comics. You know, I don't know. I bet he loves Identity Crisis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was writing comics for DC r- j- shortly after that time, I think, right? I believe or, am so. I, or is that too or is that too early? You might have even been writing them at that time. Yeah, I can't can't line that up, and I can't I'm not going to search it right now. But it does it does seem like his entry point into DC comics or comic book adaptations would have been legitimized somewhat 
by what Identity Crisis was supposed to be. I want to Goyer also co-wrote some Starman, didn't he? Yeah, I, I think so. Oh, really? I think, towards, I think towards the end he did, yeah. yeah. He and Robinson had a big falling out. I remember about that. Mm. I don't remember why. In in the um in the Starman Omnibuy, Robinson like writes an essay in each one of them. And in one of them he basically says that he doesn't speak to David Goyer anymore and that <laughs> it's sort of both of their faults and he should apologize, but he's not going to. <laughs> Rock on. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, prove us wrong, Netflix, make a good show, but we still probably won't watch it. And, uh, last bit of news. I'm going to let Vince take this one away. Um, we, we learned some stuff about our, our pal Scott Lobdell this week. Why, why, why are you letting me take this? <laughs> cause, cause you're the one who told us about it. Uh, well, he's uh, he's one of those uh, creepy stalker uh, types. I don't know. I don't really know what to call him, but uh, Bleeding Cool had a a sexual harassment themed post that focused on Lubdell and and the way that he's interacted with uh, female uh, creators. Um, editors, assistant editors, people who work at DC. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, very embarrassing text messages involved. Uh, I'll just direct people to Bleeding Cool, uh, sexual harassment in the comics industry again uh, column if they want all the details. But um, it's really credible stuff, you know? Yeah, we give, we give Uncle Rich shit sometimes about things. But when he has a story like this, oftentimes he does get it very well sourced and crosses his T's and dots his I's. And he certainly did that here. It's a it's an article that when you read it, it's pretty hard to believe that that it's bogus. And uh, I, I was telling the boys before the show started, I can't find the name of the commenter, but somebody has commented on a multiversity a few times, like, when are people going to start talking about how much of a creep Scott Lobdell is? And... I don't want to say I was dismissing those comments because I wasn't. It's just one of those things where I never really sought to look it up. And that's on me. I probably should have done that. Uh, but this is really creepy stuff. And uh, can we disagree we're not going to talk about a Lobdell comic anymore? <laughs> but 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 you guys are such fans of Red Hood Outlaw. I, I, uh, I, have you seen my Twitter? Zach, can you pin that tweet until the show drops next Wednesday? Yeah, I can. Okay. Go look at Zach's pin tweet. Um, yeah, I'm fine not talking about yeah, that's that's fine with me. It, it'll um, it'll slightly bum me out when we get the flash forward only because of my Wally fixation, but Well, you know, should should one or two or all three of us happen to to check out Flash Forward, we can maybe make some snarky dancing around the issue type comments about whether it's any good or not or what, okay. what, uh, what have you. But, uh, but yeah, um, yeah. this, this seems like a problem that DC is going to have to address probably should have already. Um, I will say that personally, uh, I mean, this you're going to lord this over me and Zach forever. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, of course not. Okay. Of course not. Uh, I, 
honestly, I've never heard any of this stuff as far as like sexual harassment with Scott Labdell's concerned. Like I, I'd, I'd never heard that before, honestly. Stuff that I had heard about him was that like he says weird things on panels at Comic Cons. Things that are not like like things that that harass or are like politically incorrect about entire groups of people, which is Lovely. not okay. I mean, yeah, it's 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 not okay. I think he did he did something at a Comic Con once, if I remember correctly, where like he said something like, uh, "Will all the girls who actually read comics raise their hands?" Yes, or something. Like yes, that. he did. You remember that? Yes. Uh, and and so like I read that and I thought like okay he's that's bad he's a weirdo he's a creep, uh, but I had never heard this stuff about like directly sexually harassing people, um, but given the things that he apparently has said at cons before, none of this surprises me now and 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 you know I tend I tend to believe women anyway, but like when when it's so meticulously sourced and when you've got Alex DeCampi who I, you know, trust immensely to be right about this stuff and to know what she's talking about and to have experienced it firsthand saying things like, oh yeah, this is not, not really a secret in comics. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's no argument to be had here. Yeah. I mean, it, like you had said, you know, there were sort of intimations that he was, that he was a creep. And I said, I wish I had taken our, our comments or more seriously and looked that stuff up. I don't know how much I would have found, but you know it would have been it would have been good to give it the old college try. But I do want to say that you know I, I think it's it's a pretty well known thing that, that multiversity believes victims, and we we have a couple of times now taken some heat for coming down on some creators who were accused of things. We've been accused of being uh, to quote uh, Hot Fuzz Judge Judy and Executioner um, <laughs> a couple of times, you know, about things. But we you know we we try to believe victims. In all circumstances, so you know, if this means we got to stop talking about Red Hood, that's not a big deal. I would much rather err on the side of being correct of of supporting people who were victimized by this creepy fucking bad writer than <laughs> than by you know waiting until all the evidence is out there because, like you said, there is other evidence of him being a creep out there in the universe. Well, let's do this, boys. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the comics that we're going to review from the 6th of July, 2019. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together, we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow on iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we are back with our discussion of the week's books. Um, because we are determined to do things in strict alphabetical order, we're going to start with Adventures of the Super Sons, number 12. This is the final issue of the maxi-series that um, sort of fills in a gap in the 
Damian Wayne, John Kent story, written by Peter Tomasi, illustrated by Carlo Barberi. I know Zach and I had both kind of fallen off this book just in terms of, you know, the weekly grind of reading the issues, not not because of the content, just because it got a little bit tricky. But Vince, you've been reading this consistently, correct? Yes. And so why don't you start the conversation here? What did you think of this final issue? Well, I think... Um... <laughs> I don't know. I think it's I think it's really interesting. I think it does a lot of like uh I think it does a lot of like um explaining kind of the 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 mechanism. It's, it's hard to it's hard to explain because I know like, exactly what you're saying though. You know what I mean? Like yes. like there was a lot uh, of there was a lot of explaining stuff. And it wasn't even explaining the story. It was like explaining what is the background to the story that you don't really need to know to enjoy the story? Right. And that you kind of already do know if you've been reading it. So um, that, that was kind of a choppy start. So let me, let me back up and explain that in this issue, John and Damien end up inside this hypercube, which is like basically the Tesseract from the MCU. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is it's a device that, that, Rex Luthor, like the 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 young Lex Luthor analog, uh, has in his possession, and it's got this you know massive creative power to it. Um, but what it really is is this sort of um, storytelling. It's this it's this cube, and the cube also has like a consciousness. And it is creating stories within it that that manifest themselves outside of as it. outside of it as some sort of real world. And it's kind of been the catalyst for this adventure that John and Damien have been on. And you kind of knew that already, but you didn't you didn't know all the mechanics of it, but I feel like you didn't really need to know that either. Um and so I, I really liked this series, and I, I liked the conclusion, except that I thought it in places it's a little clunky because of that exposition. I, I want to say, like, the first half of the issue is kind of explaining how this cube works or how it has, how everybody got to the point that we've gotten to in this story through the cube. And I don't think that part is really necessary. Um, but I love the John and Damien relationship, and that shines through here. And and if you've read from the first issue to now, there's been growth with that relationship. Like you really you really feel like they know one another better by the end of this series. I think that comes out in the end. Um, I love that. I love that there really is like an all ages touch to this too. Um, I, I feel like kids could read this. Um, and I think, I think in some ways it touches on some things that, that, that DC, we talked about how Tommy tomorrow has been a, a character in this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been touching on these little things here and there that are very much DC properties and characters and things that that don't get used all that often yeah, wasn't and, space cabbie a part of it for a while for a little bit yep yep 
and and repurposes them to like an all ages purpose in an easily digestible way that's really fun. Um, and and then the the entire issue ends with the uh, a page that says never the end, which is a, a classic DC way to end a series, and mm-hmm. I just love that. It gets me every time. Um, so I think this issue is not the best example of what the book has to offer as a book, but I think a lot of its spirit was still here. And so I would encourage people to, I would encourage you guys to go back and read the earlier issues sometimes or sometime to like catch back up with it. Um, even though it's over now. Zach, go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I did like this. I haven't been, you know, like you said, reading it uh, for a while. I think I read maybe like the first five issues and kind of fell off. But um, I did get, you know, kind of um, hints of their, uh, of Tomasi's Superman run, um, too, like callbacks to that. Um, like, wasn't the Hypercube from that run, too? Maybe. I can't I can't remember that. I kind of feel like so like Manchester Black shows up in a panel of this issue and I kind of think that arc with him had something to do with the hypercube too. I may be misremembering, but I, I thought it had something to do with uh something in that uh arc or in that run, which was kind of cool. Maybe mm-hmm. if not, you know, not a big deal. But um but yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. This captured um a lot of what I thought was fun about the early issues of Super Sons 2 in the first series. Um, I think that it, I, I kind of fell off of that series a little bit towards the end, which is what made me a little bit less interested in this one. But um, no, yeah, I thought this issue was, was a lot of fun. Uh, I liked how um, John had like sand hair the whole time just to carry that analogy <laughs> a little bit further. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I thought that this was a lot of fun. I, I, I say I will go back and read it. I, there's a good chance that I won't, but I, I want to, it's not because it's not good. Um, it's just, there's so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What Zach said in terms of going back and rereading it, I feel the exact same way. Um, but overall, I thought this was a fun issue. I did think that the beginning was super explainy for no real reason. Um, I did find it interesting. I don't know if either of you guys read Justice League this week, but there's a whole scene in Justice League with um, Martian Manhunter and Hawkgirl's son basically trying to figure out like if he exists or not. And he's confused because he's like the he's a figment of an of someone else's imagination, but he has like agency and and all that. And I felt that that was very similar to some of the hypercube stuff in this issue. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting how those two ideas kind of dovetailed together. I'm sure that was not planned, um, but yeah. So overall, this was fun. I uh, I love Carlo Barberi's art. I think it's super. It's a great fit for these two characters, um, and. I think that uh, you know, 12, 12 issues should be more than enough time to wrap up all the lingering threads. And I think that Tomasi did that. Again, even with missing a few issues, I feel like this is this is very much the summation of the entire series. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. 
Well, let's move on. Anything else to say? No. All right, let's get to uh, Doom Patrol, Weight of the Worlds, number one, written by Gerard Way and Jeremy Lambert, illustrated by the great James Harvey. Uh, I just want to say, before we start talking about this issue, I do find it interesting that in the interior of the issue, they refer to this as issue 13 of Doom Patrol. Yes. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that I'm is all for that. Yeah. So Zach, totally. start us off, buddy. Oh man, my dawn, Malta Bane. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was gold. Malta Bane. <laughs> I I think um, in a week of fantastic books, this was probably my favorite. Yeah, I'm gonna say it was my favorite. Um. First of all, just want to say, like, I think Harvey's art is phenomenal. Um, I'll maybe uh, <laughs> say it. You I think I like it. this better than Darrington, honestly. Woo! Like, I thought that this will fit the book so well, and the way he like transitioned from kind of uh, like noir to to like kind of more normal slice of life looking stuff to you know more trippy silver age type things i i thought like it was just so diverse um in style it reminded me a lot of what um quinones is doing in dial h right now um and i think but i could be wrong but i think harvey is also hand lettering his own stuff yeah and that makes a be the case, that yeah. makes a big difference to me yeah but there's just like so much like wonderful stuff going on here um just like in the opening pages the uh, the the ricardo is dead panel um the like highlights of all the characters are so well done the rundown of the rundown of who's real and who's not real (laughs) yeah who's real who's not real um Oh, it just all feels so weird and and unique, and every page is different. Like the stuff with Danny is so good, um, with like him talking through the radio with the music. The stuff with Flex and Rita is so good. Like the line where he's like, "I know it's I know it's difficult, and I don't know what everything must have been like, you know, in the various realities." being a space Christ, but it will happen. <laughs> Flex Mentalo is, is the best boy. He's so good. Um, and just the way that it, like, the A plot of them going to this world that is obsessed with fitness and they worship Jude Law and um, <laughs> they're denying their true shape, which is round. And But then you, like, have the B plot of of human cliff steel, which I totally forgot that that happened in yeah, no courts. Um, like going to find his mom and it's just depressing. Oh God. AF. Like, gosh, oh, I just thought this whole thing was perfect. This book is back and it's good again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't really have too much to add to that. You know, I, I, before we started talking, I mentioned how I felt like this week was a little bit uh, maybe underwhelming for me. Except for this book. I feel like this book did everything I want a Doom Patrol book to do. It's it's so fucking weird. But it's beautiful. 
there's a lot of really fun callbacks to um to the prior issues like i i, I gotta find where it is now but um what's the name of the cat lotion lotion, lotion. i basically said like you know it says like so and so is is this lotion is a sentient uh man cat or something and everything's just presented so matter of fact like the same, same thing with the space christ panel you know it's just it brings you to this bizarre world but it treats it very matter of factly once you're there and it's so much fun yeah lotion is a man cat who uh with his own free will <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, Zach, I'm glad you went so over the top on James Harvey. Um, I remember he did a backup or two. What was it for? You know what he did? What? The thing I'm remembering is when he did those issues of. We are Robin. We are Robin. We are Robin number four, baby. Yeah. Yep, for sure. And the, but then what I'm thinking of is he did some backups for, for young animal, whether it was doom patrol or, or some other book. It was I can't that remember. weird. It was like a maze. Remember that? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yep. I don't remember that. Huh? Oh yeah. I wish I could remember what it was called. It, anyway, I, yeah, I just think the world of, of James Harvey. And I thought that before I thought that before he was ever involved in uh, anything DC, I just think like his art is so like, it is both incredibly cartoony and yet also like super detailed. So like the the panel that I'm thinking of in the in this issue that best exemplifies James Harvey to me is when Flex is trying to lift the most weight he's ever lifted and his body like shows all the musculature bulging out. Mm-hmm. That panel with all the swirly lines and the hand lettered, <laughs> uh, like grunting and the muscles with the veins and the very defined like abs and, and pecs with all the lines everywhere. That, that is so James Harvey to me. And that is something that, that only he would bring to a, a comic like this. And it's just, Oh man, it's, it's funny, but it also like is eye catching and he does all sorts of little eye cat. Like, look at that whole page. Later, you see uh, Flex's face seeing Destiny Beach, mm-hmm. and it's like it's his two eyes, and then like the beach splits down the middle of his face. And, like, and then the, the, very... the the sun is where his third eye would be. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then the panel below, where the where the it's very minimalist, but the weight drops back down onto the onto the uh, bench. Uh, yeah. And with like a clunk that is just so that sequence it's so interesting so comic booky and just depicting that idea in a way that so few artists actually would you know showing you all these different things in a very non straightforward fashion you know oh man i i can i cannot believe i couldn't believe that he was on young animal backups at one point I can't believe we got a whole issue of this from him. And but that's all we're me, getting, I believe. Right. I was going to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but a different artist is doing each, each issue of Doom Patrol yes. this time around. Um, but the fact that we got this and it was so good is just. I want to say then, he might be doing um, 
covers for more issues too. Okay. But then that la- that last sequence of Cliff driving off the cliff and like probably going to end up as robot man again <laughs> after he crashes that car. Yep. So tense. So like Oh my god. Like Actually, it looks like Harvey might be on the second issue also. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Oh man. I I know the art switches up at some point. I do I know just... that. Yes, exactly. It, yeah. Oh God! This I also good. I also loved that for a first twelve issues that never really brought all the main characters together. This almost starts off with everybody together. Yeah, and you know you, you can kind of tell. I, I I don't I do wonder if that was something that DC wanted from them. Like like hey, you can call this your thirteenth issue, but we're gonna relaunch it as a number one, and we would like if you just quickly brought everybody together and summarized their role in it because it worked. Oh, it totally works. It's not, yes, it's not exposition heavy at all. It is so brisk. It's like the perfect way to accomplish that. And I'm not even saying it definitely like, I don't know that that was an editorial mandate, but like, I feel like sometimes that is editorial's job to say like, Hey, look, we got to reestablish this. Well, if that is what happened, Way and Harvey do it in just about the best way possible, I think. Agreed. This is so joyous and fun to read. Yeah, even when it's like dark and not joyous, like the cliff scenes, the part where um, Negative Man is having his like war, he's living his like war life. Yep. And, 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 um, the stuff with Rita, it's still so good, yeah. Oh, I can't gush about this book enough. Thank goodness it's back. Thank goodness it's back. All right, let's move on then. Uh, let's talk about Lois Lane number one, written by Greg Rucka, illustrated by Mike Perkins. Um, so let me just say, I... I liked this book, but I expected more from this book, I think. I don't know if it's that Perkins art didn't do it for me as much as I hoped it would. Or, um, I don't know. It just, I thought that all the elements for a really good book are here. It just, for some reason, this issue didn't, didn't pull me in as much as I hoped it would. That's interesting to me. Why so? Um, well, I love this book. <laughs> um, not as much as Doom Patrol, but there were a few things that I really liked about this book. One, um, talking about the Perkins art, I actually liked it more than I expected to, which was a plus. Um, I was kind of nervous about how I would feel about it. Um, but I, I, because I haven't, I, you know, I think I was maybe not first introduced to Perkins, but where he sticks out the most was on the, towards the end of Jurgens's green lanterns run. Uh-huh. And I really didn't like that. And I think this kind of book is much better suited to him. Like sometimes the faces are a little weird. I don't think I, that was a problem in this issue. Yeah. I, well, I think that was a gross problem in his green lantern stuff, mm-hmm. but I, I was relieved to not see any of that here. 
Yeah, well, I thought there were maybe a few, but it, mostly it was just down to like shading things. And I actually thought that the book shading and, and coloring was one of its strongest suits. So um, I, I liked that. I feel like this is a natural extension to Bendis' Superman books, but not in a way where like Bendis's uh, shadow is like looming over it necessarily. I feel like Rucka is getting to do his own thing, but it it synergizes really well with the Superman books. Um, but then also, and maybe this is not a great reason for liking it, but it just felt, it read like, it read like lefty political fanfic. <laughs> and I loved it so much for that. That's a, that's a good reason to like it. It, it was wish fulfillment in the way that <laughs> comics can be. You mean mm-hmm. that somebody stood up to the press secretary for the United States? Yeah. It's almost as if Lois Lane is actually a hero. Yes. Brian, you ignorant slut. I didn't I... dislike it. <laughs> I know, I know. I will also say the I... question, that's all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say I, I thought that the Lois and Clark stuff was very good. Yep, that was good. Um, I that love was... when... I, I've said this on the show before. I love when couples can have arguments or misunderstandings and it doesn't wreck their relationship at all because I'm pretty sure that happens to all of us on like a a weekly basis. Right, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, but I, but I feel like in fiction so many times things just blow up uh, and that's not really the way things happen. Um, so I think, I think Ruck is... You know, apart apart from uh, Lois being able to get a word in edgewise on Sarah Sanders at the end there, um, I thought this was a pretty realistic sounding and feeling book for a for a book set in the DCU. I think uh, Lois having this machine kills fascists on her laptop like Woody Guthrie is a little on the nose but I mean I, had to, I was gonna point it out but I literally have that sticker on my laptop so ah! <laughs> oh. um man I'm glad you brought that up Vince about the like relationship stuff and the, and the like marriage stuff that actually kind of elevates the comic even more for me because it makes it a tad more it makes it more it gives it more depth. It makes it more adult. And maybe something I didn't articulate that I wanted to is that this feels like a more grown-up adult extension to Bendis's Superman line. Yeah, which actually leads me to a question that I was going to pose to you guys. Do you guys think that in some uh, universe, whether it was just you know very cursory early discussions or not, this may have been a black label book at one point? Wasn't that actually rumored at no, one point? We, that... we've been confused on this point a few times. We have, yeah, because because it's a it's a Rucka Wonder Woman book, I believe. That... Yeah, that's that's it. You're right. Yes, but I still think there's there's aspects of it that make this feel like it may have been destined for Black Label at one point or another, and maybe was either either they decided that wasn't a good idea because it would fit in with Bendis's stuff better or, or because of the whole scrapping of not black label, but like more mature because of the, because of the, there's a bat dick. 
because of the little scare that they had, you know, maybe they maybe they pulled back at just the right time for this book to have not made the cut. But the reason why I bring it up is because there's that little shower scene between Lois and Clark where you don't you don't really see anything. But but I could imagine a world where that was expanded a little bit more to show like something, something, you know, Um, but also there's several times throughout this issue where they use symbols instead of profanity and it's done to such a degree. And this is not going to come across in, in like me discussing it on this show. It's one of those things where like, you have to read the issue to understand what I mean. But like, you know, Scott Snyder has done that from time to time, right. In his comics, Mm -hmm. it's done like four times in this issue. And it's done in such a way that it makes me think, Oh, there were real curse words there at one point. And somebody went in and ch- and brought the rating down a little on this. That's really what it felt to me because it's done more than the typical amount that you see. It used to be done a lot more. That could be, sure. Yep. Um, I'm currently reading some like 1991 DC Comics and it seems like every other word is done that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and for some reason, so, I remember I specifically remember reading a uh, an Avengers comic when I was a kid, where I believe it was War Machine definitely called somebody a smug fuck, <laughs> or it was a smug like you know, and then those things. But you know, said smug fuck. And even, even as a kid, I was like, that's a that's a rough insult. That's that's a you know, that's, that's good for you, War Machine. Put people in their place. Yeah. Um, but that <laughs> yeah. was I feel like that was definitely a thing. In, you don't see as much, but was was a thing for a, for a very long time. Sure. Um, another thing I love about this issue is that it very much takes on current events in a way that that Zach already brought up. But like, it's unmistakable that Leanne McCarthy, the press secretary, is that's Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Like, there is no. She's even got like the droopy eye. <laughs> uh, in that. <laughs> in that one panel, like it's unmistakable, right? Um, I wonder if future issues will be about how her large adult brothers killed a dog. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That that bottom panel of her on the second to last page is it's unmistakable. Yeah. It's, it's, it's light box traced. Totally. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Who's that? Who's the Marvel artist, the X Men artist? That uh, Greg, Greg Land. Land. Yeah, Greg Land. It's it's like if it's like if uh, Greg Land was tracing something a little more family friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I I had thought that the art throughout this was was fine, I guess, but I I felt like his faces were weird throughout this. Oh, like, I think especially the first scene of Lois in the hotel room. I think both Lois and the maid look pretty weird in parts. Well, as usual, I, I fall somewhere between you two. <laughs> I'm not even a Mike Perkins fan. Like I was, I was as not a fan of that Green Lantern stuff as a guy could be. You know, I just think I think he did a vastly better job on this comic, and I think it fit the tone just so perfectly. Sure. I mean, I don't think I don't think it was that bad. I just, you know, I was a little bit taken, a little bit taken out of the story at times sure. by his weird faces. 
but I, I just wanted to also I, I wasn't quite done with the with the Sarah Sanders thing. Oh sure, go for it. I, I just like when comics, you know, no matter what the subject is, I like when they reflect current events a little bit. Um, I don't even care if it dates them. Some sometimes it can be corny if like you see a reference to America online in a comic from like <laughs> 15 years ago or how Ronald Reagan is the third most important character in legends. No, see that I like <laughs> that. I, that I was specifically going to mention legends as part of oh, this. really, <laughs> I like when they reflect like the current political landscape or the current newsy landscape of whatever era they're in. Um, I enjoy going back to the eighties and reading that stuff and seeing the actual political figures of the time in these comics. Uh, so I, even if they don't call them by that name, like if, if they're playing upon things that are very clearly current events, I like that. I think that's, that's something that Marvel has traditionally been very good at consistently doing and DC, DC kind of oscillates, right? Sometimes they're, sometimes they like doing that stuff. And then other times it's almost as if they're purposely avoiding being too current. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I like that they're willing to still go there, you know, even if you if you're on one side of the issue or another, um, you know, whatever. But but I love when that's reflected in the comics. I feel like it's it's kind of dishonest to not tell stories that are current in that way sometimes, you know. Uh, and then one last thing I want to say before I'm done. We got to talk about the question, right? Yeah, we do. So I think this actually lends credence to the idea that there are three two questions <laughs> of, that two of the that two of the three questions are running around right now, because I feel like the one here is obviously Renee Montoya, and that the one in Bendis's stuff is actually a different question. I could be wrong, but I feel like that's a different question. I feel like that's Vic Sage. Am I crazy? No, I think you're right. I think that's been confirmed maybe well it has it it's been confirmed that both are running around yeah okay that's in the solicits for issue four maybe okay i don't know if i saw that but we talked about it on the show so you definitely did well i i thought it was up and i thought we were trying to decide which question we were seeing in bendis's book not that they were both running around i thought there was a Curious bit of dialogue in this issue where Lois tells who what who we assume is Renee Montoya to stop doing what she's currently doing and to go to Russia. Oh, okay. Which so made could... me almost wonder if it's if if it is Renee doing both things, but that Vic is still out there doing things too. I don't know. Okay. But but I feel like the the question that we've seen in Superman or I guess action rather has seemed more masculine whereas like this is pretty clearly renee uh just based on the hair alone yeah we've never seen the hair coming out of the the other questions hat right um but i don't know it does make me wonder i'm trying to find that solicit now I, I believe you. I just don't remember. No, I, I just want to see what it says, too. Okay. You know, um, talk amongst yourselves for one second here. Um, 
Well, Zach, it looks like you and I are right again about a comic. I've got it here, Brian, if you want me to read it. I have it right here, too, yeah. Oh, okay, go ahead. While Lois must deal with her now 17-year-old son making life-changing decisions, the two questions, Renee Montoya and Vic Sage, try to understand their own confusing continuity. Ah. When will they introduce the third question? That is the question. See what I did there? Yeah. I thought this issue was good. I thought there were some really nice parts of this issue. I just felt like the Perkins art brought it down considerably for me. But hopefully next issue works a little better. Uh, go ahead. No, I'm I'm good. Okay. Uh, that brings us to the Green Lantern number nine, written by Grant Morrison, illustrated by Liam Sharp, featuring the Earth Twenty uh, Abin Sir <laughs> from the Society of Superheroes. Um. God damn, this is a fun issue. I say it every time. This is the new best issue of the series. <laughs> <laughs> I I fucking love this book. I I just love I love how you can consistently count on Grant Morrison to tell his story and not give a shit if you don't understand like who some of these characters are. Look at that opening page where like you see the names Marta, Marvel Maid. Logie, Quisto, Rigor, <laughs> Supermail, Vartox, Luma, like all these all these characters right off the bat. He just tosses into this blender and you don't have to know anything about them. But you you get the sense that there's this like no, nobody writes a bigger world than Grant Morrison, right? Right. His world is just populated with so many characters and they're all important but they're all important in his mind. They're, they don't have to be important to you, you know? <laughs> and it works. And oh, that's... it definitely works, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Sir Hal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that whole section was great. The headquarters of the United Planet Superwatch, <laughs> yeah. who I think are all new characters, although that there's that one character on the far right that kind of looks like Monel. Yes. Who, by the uh, way, is part of Bendis' Legion reboot. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but, but yeah, having having Liam Sharp do this medieval high fantasy stuff is just the best. I mean, this is what he's been doing this whole series, just, just like evoking these different periods of comics. Mm-hmm. And every time he does it, I'm like, oh man, just when you thought Liam Shark couldn't get any better at this, he totally nails this tone now. Yeah. Um, I thought it was funny. What what was the name? Ah, uh, uh, Abanazur. Yeah. yeah. Um, which like both evoked tones of Insabanur and also uh, Batman of Zurinar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, can I do, since we haven't shat on a Tom King thing yet? Uh, sure, go ahead. This episode, can I, can I bring something up? Sure. Yeah. So, you know how there's that oft-criticized panel from Heroes in Crisis where Hal says, 
Will, what? who even knows what the hell Will is or yeah. whatever, whatever he says. There's a page in this comic where, oh, what does it say? The ring, the ring says, Hal asks his ring what to, what to do because uh, Abin Sur is more powerful than him and his ring doesn't work as well on this earth, right? And the ring said, try not thinking he's stronger than you. <laughs> That's Will! Yep. That is Will. Grant Morrison gets it in one fucking page. Explains what Will is in the context of Green Lantern. That's perfect. God, wh- why does he get it? And, and other people don't. <laughs> well, Grant Morrison's a genius. So. I know, he's a super god. He's the god of all comics. Um, Kiss his ass some more on this show. So here's a question. Um, on page 22, the Mad Lantern that's introduced, do you think that that's the... Um, Hal Jordan-esque character from earlier in the series, or do you think that's something else? Well, that looks that looks quite a bit different at this point than I can't than... I can't remember. I only I I thought maybe we only saw like half of that character. Like the no, he clearly did look like a like alternate universe Hal kind of, or like a yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Whereas this looks like. Just like a crazy barbarian. It's almost yeah. like a, a Terminator. It's like a, a fantasy yes. Terminator Green Lantern. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. <laughs> the Mad Lantern, Dread Emissary of the Reversal Verse. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Quaw Man. The Quaw Man. Whatever yeah. the fuck that means. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And like, uh, the Daleks. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I'll always remember um, in the foreword to um, the first Final Crisis hardcover and maybe in like some subsequent ones. I, I can't remember who it was who who wrote it, but they talked about reading some of the dialogue in uh, the Final Crisis um, Superman Beyond issues to, to his wife and, and her just being like, astonished that those words were actually in a comic book (laughs) and like like that page above before the the reveal of the mad lantern where like abinster's just like i gave him the key to the door i've damned the multiverse and then there's that panel of like the the like five-pointed star with the cube falling through it and it's just like (laughs) the most absurd thing in the world but (laughs) it's Um... perfect so I, I do want to talk about the final page for a second. Oh hell yeah, yeah. Where we see the well, first of all, this this entire issue is with like alternate version Green Lanterns, right? So we get the Avenger of Earth twenty. We get the um, I forget what the name of the Batman story where he gets the ring is. I think uh, it's in. It's, is it's it in Blackest Night. In Blackest Night, maybe. No. No, it's called yeah, In Blackest bat- Night. Batman in Blackest Night. Oh yeah. Oh, I thought I thought you meant it, it happened oh, in John's. Oh, well, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Or it actually might have been something weird, like in Darkest Night. I yeah. think that's actually it. Yeah. Then. That uh, could, yeah, that could be, it. and that's Earth Thirty Two yeah. at this point. Yes. Okay. Do we know who the flashlight wielding Hal is? That's flashlight of Earth Thirty Six. 
That's literally his name. Is there a fleshlight, you think, as well? <laughs> Wait, now which 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 hero would be fleshlight? Oof. It's gotta be somebody with shape shifting properties. Is it uh is it John Jones? Is it Martian Manhunter? Is it Elongated Man? Oh, there you go. Yeah. There it is. Yeah, it's on an earth where the elongated man is Green Lantern. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then we get this guy yeah do you know i don't remember is? i don't remember which earth he is from i do remember him from he's, the guidebook he's earth 47 okay he's magic lantern <laughs> <laughs> he is a member of the love syndicate of dream world <laughs> first appearance animal man issue number 23 wow oh man I still need to read one Animal Man. Oh, so dude. Good. dude. I was oh, just rereading man. it and they pulled it off DC Universe and I'm so mad I didn't read all of it. <laughs> Did they really? That sucks. Yeah. Um, he's also shaggy. He's, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like I'm looking at uh, the image from the Multiversity Guidebook and mm-hmm. he is like 100% Scooby Doo <laughs> character. Um,. Norville Shaggy Rogers. Gosh. And we know that there's more Green Lanterns coming, I think, from the solicits we've seen. They've I shown a few, so, yes. a few other ones. Um, yeah. Man. Can I tell you guys what the, my literal first thought when I started reading the book was, though? What? I love Marta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. A great issue, though. Yeah. What a what a great book. What what did we do to deserve <laughs> a Grant Morrison Green Lantern book this good? Because we put up with uh, three years of Green Lanterns <laughs> and Hal Jordan the Green Lantern Corps. Yeah. Or at least two years of it, rather two years of it. I just I'm just so thrilled that that they let him do this. And Liam Sharp is just the greatest. My estimation of him increases with every issue. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. All right. That brings us to our final issue of the week. The final issue of The Wild Storm. The Wild Storm, number 24. Written by Warren Ellis. Illustrated by John Davis Hunt. I'm going to let somebody else start this one. I'm going to guess this is one of the things that disappointed you, so. (sighs) Let someone uh, else talk first. Vince, Vince, do you want to go first? Do, do you want me to go? I'll, I'll go. Okay. This is what I'll say about this issue. It tried to pack in too much into one issue. That's probably the only negative thing I can say about it. There's a lot. There's a lot that happens in this. A lot. When you compare it to some of the other issues that came before, that. Uh, we're a little more decompressed. This is like super compression by comparison. That said, there are so many moments in this issue that pay off on things for these characters that we've been reading for 24 issues now that are just such great moments. Um, I, I could go down the list, but, but like basically every character, no matter how small or how, or, you know, how little their involvement has been in this series 
gets a little moment, including Voodoo, who I'm not sure now through 24 issues what <laughs> what she's been doing this entire time. Uh, but even she gets a moment. Um, I think the ending, it ends on a really positive note, a really kind of like sunny, inspirational note. Um, and I also think that, that the John Davis Hunt, like what, what John Davis Hunt did for 24 issues is like a marvel of modern comics. I, you just don't see it anymore. And he did it. He pulled it off. I think his work here looks just as good as it's always looked. I don't think anything is rushed on his end. Um, just what a what an achievement to do 24 straight issues of this. Um, yeah, that's that's all I have to say about that. Uh, um, well, I'll go before Brian just takes you takes dump all over this book. Steaming um, shit. Yeah. Uh, um, so I agree with everything that Vince said. I want to highlight the last page because I think I think it ends on kind of a, an abrupt note. But I think that that last page is so important because it highlights just what it is that made this book different than Warren Ellis's previous work in the Wildstorm universe where where uh jenny says at the end of the day it wasn't about the secret history of the universe all the cosmic crap all the spook shows and mad <laughs> science it was about her uh, talking about the engineer and like really that's what it was like that's where the series started it was all about her she was the through line you know she introduced us to all the the major players she was with the Wildcats, then she was with the, you know, untitled authority, and she was the one who, like, ended up saving the day, too. And so, like, whereas the old Wildstorm universe was this huge, like, interlocking puzzle with all these different teams and all these secret histories and all this crazy stuff, like, this was essentially just, like, the story about one person and her, like, journey. So, I think... I've had trouble figuring out what it is that makes this series different in earlier issues. And then Ellis just tells me right there. So <laughs> I think all that's correct. I think that's a really good observation, Zach. Um, so can I, can I express my, my minor gripes with this issue? I guess we'll allow it. Okay. The first one is exactly what Vince said. It tried to do so much in one issue, and that's not an indictment of the prior 23 issues that were very slow. I liked that pace. We don't get comics made at that pace anymore, and I really enjoy reading a book like that. And I felt that this issue suffered because it didn't... It felt to me out of step with the rest of the series tonally, because of how much was happening. So I'll, I'll say that. I'll also say that I felt for a, for a book that's part of a, like an imprint, or I don't know what we're calling this, I guess, is this, is this one of the pop-up imprints? Whatever it is. This, end, this ending felt very finite, but also incredibly open-ended. And I'm fine with either of those things. I just felt it was a weird combination of both of those things. Like, f forgive me for being ignorant here. That is Michael Cray, who's he shot in the head, right? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like it kills off the Michael Craig character with almost no fanfare. Well, well, what? I really doubt he's dead. He, he could be. He could be, and I think that that would be a bold choice. It it but... is a bold choice, but I just feel like we spent so much time with this character to write him off that quickly. Just felt, I don't know. It felt very abrupt. I guess everything about this issue to me just felt very abrupt. I was going to say, I thought that that moment was one of my favorite parts of the issue just because of how unexpected it was. Uh, Agreed. I'm not criticizing the move. It just felt to me like everything happened so quickly in this issue that I, and maybe after I sit with it and read it a few more times and read it like as part of the overall series, I'll feel a little bit differently about it. It just feels like a book that, and maybe this is, maybe the intentional part was we're going to do this slow burn of a book that, rushes to the finish line for a like thematic tonal purpose but i just think this would have been a much better as like this is four issues of the wild storm shoved into one yeah that that's true and my last gripe and this is really just this is not a gripe this is more just a celebration of davis hunt i wish john davis hunt was given less people talking in this issue his best stuff typically happens on silent pages and there just weren't as many silent pages in this issue because you had to get so much done so quickly. But that said, the couple of like showcase moments for him are just so amazing. When the door opens and the like the diamond rocket thing goes through it, mm-hmm. just a gorgeous page. There's also that really great page uh, uh, with. Uh... Jack Hawks more like forms that golem out of like steel beams and things on the left side. And then uh, like engineers doing her thing on that side. That one mm-hmm. doesn't have any, any dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Those are, those are the things that I look forward to weirdly enough in each issue of Wildstorm are the, the silent pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, I'm not shitting on the issue. I just, I just felt it was rushed and overstuffed. Yeah, I think I, I do agree with that. Yep. How about how about uh, Jackie King just annihilating uh, Miles Craven like Doctor Manhattan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually the second Doctor Manhattan sort of faux reference of the week when. Uh, in Doom Patrol, when the blue hand comes out to like hold on to Cassie's hand. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, and it turns out just to be a, a <laughs> spherical god. Exactly, a spherical god obsessed with fitness. <laughs> Do you guys feel like this is set in the stage for an authority book now? I know we've um, thought that for so long, but does the text bear that out now? Well, I don't. I do not think that we are ever going to have these characters called the authority in this book or in this universe. But I mean, they're, they are a team now. So. I don't think we're going to get. I don't think we're going to. I don't want to, I don't want to put this voodoo out there. I was gonna say I don't think we're gonna get a Warren Ellis authority book. Well, what do you mean by that? I think like if we, I think if we ever get one, there, it just won't be with Ellis's involvement. 
they'll get somebody else to do it and it will be down the road. It won't be, it won't be like coming out of wildcats or anything. Why do you think that? Who do you think they would do that? What's that? Who do you think would do it? I don't know. Just somebody, there's just like, if DC wants to continue to use, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yes. No, I just think, I think that if they want to use these characters again, they may use this universe that he has established, but I feel like by the time they come back to it, Ellis will have moved on to something else, or or yeah. they'll have, they'll deem him too expensive or, or something. You don't think that he's maybe got some other big thing lined up for after Wildcats? I don't think. No, I kind of think that because Wildcats is only six issues, that that's kind of it. See, I think I actually think the exact opposite thing. I think like that is kind of the stopgap for the next big season. I agree. I, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I really do. It's the sorbet you... to cleanse the palate before <laughs> the next big thing. I really hope you're right. I, I sincerely hope that's true. Do you think it's going to be John Davis Hunt drawing it then? No. I I could see another. I I don't necessarily see them doing another 24-issue series. I, I'm kind of... Maybe, I guess, I, I, I can see what you're saying, Vince. I don't see this going on for, like, years and years, but I could see a follow-up that's maybe, like, 12 issues that is, like, the second season of The Wild Storm mm-hmm. with John Davis Hunt. Okay, I, I hope so. I I feel like that was the original idea because, it, remember, he said something about one series is going to become another one? in this, mm-hmm. After the second year, yeah. Yeah, and I... I feel like that could easily be this but i just feel like (sighs) maybe i'm reading into it too much but i just feel like the 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 sales and the the excitement and the word of mouth is just not there to 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 turn this into what it was going to be I just think I think it would be really weird if that was the case. I just think they wouldn't do the Wildcat or yeah, the Wildcats. I don't I don't think they would even do that because this was relatively, a, you know, finite, complete story. I think doing Wildcats opens up more doors um, because it's going to expand on them, which, you know, they weren't heavily featured in this book. And I think it's just going to open up more storytelling opportunities for whatever the next thing is. I hope that's true. Okay, so the Wildstorm sold... Wildstorm 23 sold 11,244 issues. Oh, man. That's really low. It deserves so much better than that. I mean, for context, though, that sold more than Kick-Ass did. It sold more than the Hellboy versus Lobster Johnson one shot. Um, yeah, but but these are big two comics and yeah. Just just for some context, the nearest big two comics to it are Books of Magic, Lucifer. Um, some of those uh, Marvel one dollar True Believer comics. Mm-hmm. IDW well, Spider-Man you know, series, Marvel Action Spider-Man. Lucifer has been going a lot less longer as well. You know, you got to think this is a two-year-old book that's had delays. Yeah. I mean, to still be holding at eleven thousand 
over two years in, I think is saying something. What's what's crazy to me is looking at the books that are below that, like Female Furies sold nine thousand copies. House of Whispers nine thousand copies. Incredible Hulk nine thousand copies. Uh Runaways nine thousand copies. Pearl Um The Silencer eight thousand copies. Naomi eight thousand that's not good for Naomi. I think Naomi's gonna get wrapped up into Young Justice. High level six thousand issues. Oof. Is that the lowest DC or Marvel book? Nope. Scooby Doo team up five thousand. Mm. Getting canceled. Unstoppable Wasp five thousand. Major X five thousand. Oh, you know, but some of the, some some of these might be, some of these might be like the pre- previous month's issues. To be fair, because okay. one of them was War of the Realms number two. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. and a, for Immortal sure. Hulk number one. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, Mortal Hulk, Hulk number one. That's got to be a reprint because. Yeah, exactly. That would have been months ago. Major X, Jeremy Hatchett's uh, favorite book, by the way. <laughs> of course it is. Well, let's talk about our lists for this week. Um, On the good list, we have Deathstroke, Harley Quinn, and Justice League. On the okay list, we have Batgirl, Deceased, or Diseased, as Vince calls it, uh, and Female (laughs) Furies. On the Same Man Universe list, we have The Dreaming. And on the Walmart list, we have Superman Up in the Sky. Vince, what's coming out next week? Another great issue of Batman, of course. Of course. Um, Batman and the Outsiders. Batman, Walmart, Bendis Universe, number one. Uh, Catwoman, Detective Comics. Very Gotham heavy uh, week. A bit, yeah, <laughs> aren't they all? That's true. Uh, Event, Event Leviathan, number two. The Flash, Hawkman, uh, House of Whispers, Justice League Odyssey, Naomi, number six. Um. Red Hood Outlaw. Canceled. <laughs> Canceled. Uh, Supergirl 32. Superman 13. Wonder Twins. Wonder Woman. Young Justice. My God. That's a packed week. And... It's a good thing how how often we say that's a packed week. 14 comics I will be reading. Oof. On, on that list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm tugging on my collar right yeah. now. You can't see it. Oh, I can and see that, it. And that... <laughs> it's because I have a TC Tuggers. <laughs> I'm, I'm the only one who watches that, right? Have you guys seen that yet? What is it? Uh, uh, I think you should leave. I watched, I watched a few episodes. I, have, I haven't finished it yet. It's great. Oh, okay, so you've seen the TC Tuggers. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for thinking that they're cool. and. <laughs> Uh, well, until until next week you can find two thirds of us on twitter I am at Brian is an app and I'm at Walker Fox if you need Vince he is in the CVS buying a certain <laughs> kind of medicine <sighs> not great man yeah not great man <laughs> you
Well, you, you know, how do you st- how do you stop three birds from chirping, right? <laughs>